Hello and welcome to the Sojourners in the Storm Bible Study Podcast. Today we'll be continuing on in our study through the Gospel of Mark, and we will be beginning the uh, sixth chapter of this Gospel. Um, so with that, if you want to get your Bibles ready, we'll turn to chapter six. We'll be covering the first six verses today. Um, let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, for another opportunity to share your word. Father, I pray and just ask you, please just go before each and every one of us um, that are taking the time to study your word, Lord, to get to know you more. Father, I pray that you would just uh, fill our hearts, fill our minds, and fill our souls with your word and with truth. Father, I lift up this time to you, and I just ask and pray these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 6. And uh, chapter 6 of Mark is the second longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. I think there's 56 verses in total. So this is going to be a couple studies that we go through with it. But the theme that I'm noticing here is the unbelief of the people that uh, Jesus is coming across as he's uh, dealing with first his hometown, as we'll cover today. And uh, also you will see what happens when you let the world sway you away from the truth of Jesus Christ and make you do things that are um, not exactly uh, right in order to avoid being pressured or looked down upon by others. And we'll see that coming up next week in next week's study as we uh, cover the death of John the Baptist, as well as, uh, you know, some other stories that, are, that we're, that we're going to cover. You know, basically what happens is you're going to start to see the rejection of Jesus, where we've been seeing that he is going into these towns and these um, areas around Galilee, right? And there's these big giant crowds that are following him and crushing him. And, uh, you know, he's basically having to retreat into a boat. Um, now you're going to see people like kind of turn away from him. And he's ministering to smaller crowds, which is a good thing, too. Because the thing about God is he relates to us on a personal level. And so that's what we're going to kind of see Jesus doing at the same time. And so with that, let's get started. And, you know, we really, we live in a world today where unbelief in the living God is all too prevalent, right? It's a sad landscape for sure. As we see evil, evil infiltrate the doors and pews of churches and homes all over the world. You know, just this weekend, as our nation is once again at odds with one another over the legal ability to uh, uh, for people to kill their unborn children, I point your attention to the state of California, where protesters uh, disrupted a Catholic mass this Sunday. Now, the Catholic Church is an avid pro-life organization, providing countless charities and adoption agencies, as well as assistance from others. Um, the position of the church is a long-standing one of life and the defense of life. You know, this weekend, as protesters entered the church building and were confronted by men in the congregation and being removed, the removers can be clearly heard on camera telling the protesters that they were with them. But this isn't the place, right? What kind of a statement is that? Beliefs and the appearance of belief are two different things. Many people claim to be believers. Many attend church services and functions, but their convictions do not meet their claims. You know, just as the man that was caught on camera this weekend gave himself up as an apostate, so do uh, so too does most of the world as it claims a belief in God, but sides with the ways of the world and its ruler. Charles Darwin said that 
belief was the most complete of all distinctions between man and the lower uh, and the lower animals. You know, if this observation is true, it suggests that lack of faith on man's part puts him on the same level as the animals. Agnostic orator Robert Ingersoll took a different point of view, for he once described a believer as a songless bird in a cage. Now, you would probably agree that uh, <clears throat> that his words better describe an unbeliever, right? Now, twice in the gospel records, we see Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth. The first visit that we see is recorded in Luke chapter 4, and I'll read that for you. So Luke chapter 4, verse 16 says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery to the, of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah, except, uh, was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel. In the time of Elisha, the prophet had, and, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Okay, so we see the first time that he enters back into Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue uh, as a traveling rabbi. Basically, you're invited to come up and teach. And so what he did was he went in, he, he got the scrolls, he went to Isaiah, where, you know, the por portion of scripture that we just read. And he basically calls out, look, this prophecy is fulfilled. The Messiah is here and I am he is basically what Jesus is saying. And so these guys get furious. They turn around and they try and basically throw him off a cliff. You know, many skeptics, though point to Jesus' two recorded visits as a contradiction in the Bible because they associate the separate visits as one. Now, look at the difference between the two. Um, if we read into them, we see two different outcomes of what took place. And so we basically have two different visits. So in Mark chapter uh, 6, verse 1, it says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this that uh, which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, 
and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. So Jesus' second rejection at Nazareth is what we're going to cover today. Now the first time that Jesus go home, goes home, he declares himself to be Messiah, right? The reaction was for the people of the town to question him and his lineage, and then try to kill him by sending him over the ledge. The second time he enters, he's met with more unbelief. Now, to lend further proof that Jesus went twice, we can look at Matthew's gospel as well. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 says, When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. Right, so Matthew and Mark both offer parallel accounts of the visit as they have the same outcome where Luke differs. You know, there, uh, there may have been different outcomes of the visits, but the results of the teaching remain the same as Jesus would enter the synagogue and teach, but both times be met with unbelief from those in attendance. So Jesus is rejected because people did not understand the nature of the man that was teaching. In verse 1 again it says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Now, for the people of Nazareth, the challenge for their belief came in their familiarity with Jesus. For them, Jesus was a commoner. They had watched him grow up in a carpenter's shop. He was one of them and nothing special in their eyes. Familiarity can sometimes lead us to take for granted the people that we think we are familiar with, and thus lead us away from who they really are as we uh, form our own perception of them. You know, familiarity breeds contempt, is a well-known maxim that goes all the way back to Publis, uh, uh, the Syrian, who lived in 2 BC. Now, Aesop wrote a fable to illustrate it. And in Aesop's fable, a fox had never before seen a lion. And when he first met the king of the beasts, the fox was nearly frightened to death. At their second meeting, the fox was not frightened quite as much. And the third time he met the lion, the fox went up and chatted with him. And so it is, Aesop concluded, that familiarity makes even the most frightening things seem quite harmless. You know, we have to be mindful of those people around us at all times, because at any given time, God can be doing a work in them that we may not recognize because we think we know a person, uh, who a person was and who they really are. You know, husbands do not despise their wives because they get to know them well, and two friends do not end uh, friendships because they are in tune with each other. In fact, the more we know a person not becoming familiar with the person, 
the more we can appreciate and not have misguided opinions on who they are. You know, we all may have a famous athlete or celebrity that we are familiar with on the surface, but when we look into their lives, we often find out they are entirely different people than we had first perceived. Philip Brooks said it best, familiarity brings contempt. Only the compatible things are, or among compat uh, compatible people. The contempt shown by the Nazare uh, Nazarenes said nothing about Jesus Christ, but it said a great deal about them. A tourist eager to see everything in the art gallery fled from picture to picture, scarcely noticing what was in the frames. I didn't see anything very special here, he said to one of the guards as he left. Sir, the guard replied, it is not the pictures that are on trial here, it's the visitors. <clears throat> you know, the problem with the people of Nazareth was not the teaching or the message that Jesus was delivering. It was the people themselves, thinking they knew who Jesus was based on appearance, but not actually under knowing his character. You know, I also want to add in that many of the, the Gnostic writings that are rejected in the church, uh, today we can find stories about a young Jesus, and I mean as a child performing miracles. Now, to give you an example of it, uh, I'll read you this out of the Quran. It says, Then will Allah say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, recount my favor to thee and to thy mother. Behold, I strengthen thee with the Holy Spirit, so that thou didst speak to the people in childhood and in maturity. Behold, I taught thee the book and wisdom, the law and the gospel. And behold, thou makest out of clay, as it were, the figure of a bird by my leave, and thou bre uh, breathest into it, and it becometh a bird by my leave. And thou healest those born uh, blind, and the lepers, by my leave. And behold, thou bringest forth the dead by my leave, and, and behold, I did restrain the children of Israel from violence to thee, when thou didst show them the, the clear signs. And the unbelievers among them said, This is nothing but evident magic. So where did the Quran get this information about Jesus? It seems to come from a single parasutical, uh, pseudo-pedographical, uh, uh, big word I, I, I'm butchering, gospel called the infancy uh, gospel of Thomas. Now the ancient text is uh, attributed to an author named Thomas the Israelite and it provides a number of stories related to the miraculous childhood of Jesus chronicling the years missing in the cano uh, canonical gospel of Luke. Now, here's the question for you. If Jesus was a miracle worker as a child, then the people he grew up around would probably have been more receptive of him as he taught and, and, and would have believed, right? But we know that what we just read from the Quran, we know that everything in the infancy of the gospel of Thomas is false. We know that for two reasons. You know, if he was performing these signs and wonders as a child, he would have been revered in that region instead of coming back as just a humble carpenter who now has wisdom and is teaching on a level that they had never heard before, right? Jesus is the author of the Old Testament. He is the author of the Word of God. He is the author of all Scripture and the Bible. It's a by him and it's about him. You know, it's basically his autobiography. But... When he goes up to teach, that means that he's going to teach with an authority never seen before. He's not quoting other rabbis. He's not quoting uh, 
uh, you know, books or anything else like that. He, he's basically giving you the explanation of what's going on. And these people were having a very hard time with it. Now, the second reason that we know that these things are untrue is because of the date that they were written. You know, the gospel, uh, the infancy gospel of Thomas was probably written two or three generations past when the original apostles died. And so what happens in that time is legends work their way into uh, the truth and the actual stories that are happening. Stuff is, is given liberty to it. And the people that were closest to Jesus did not have the ability to refute any of the things that were being said. And so those are disregarded and, and basically uh, assumed to be uh, stories and made up. And, and also, you know, they don't line up with the character of Jesus, right? That wasn't his character. That wasn't his nature. We know from Scripture, we know from the Spirit-breathed Holy Scriptures that we read each and every day that Jesus' first miracle was when he turned water into wine at the wedding. Right, And we read about that in John. That was the beginning of his miraculous ministry and his work right there. Now, um, we look at verse 3 now. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So Jesus is greeted with insults and discrediting remarks in Nazareth. Now, a carpenter in those days, in the days of Jesus, were skilled professionals, right? During the childhood years of Jesus, or about the time that he would have been a child, I would say, the town of Sepphoris was destroyed by the Romans. Now, this was the capital of Galilee, and it was located about four miles from Nazareth. Now, carpenters, and most of these guys were working with wood, as well as some stonemasons and other professional builders, were tasked with rebuilding the destroyed city. Now, after its completion, the carpenters mostly worked from their homes, and Jesus probably learned the trades of his, uh, of his earthly father, Joseph. Now, it was customary in those days for a father to teach his son his trade, right? So when they refer to him as a carpenter, that is what he grew up doing. He grew up doing carpentry work with Joseph. Now, in asking if Jesus was the carpenter, it, mean, it was a means of identifying him, but not as a means of discrediting him. Now, there are several ancient stories about carpenters becoming great teachers in the Jewish culture. Where the insult to Jesus comes is when they ask if he was the son of Mary. Now, in that day, you identified a man by who his father was and not his mother. Now, this was a form of belittling him, I think, because of the conviction that he probably brought on them. Now, by now, it was probably common knowledge in Nazareth that Jesus, uh, that the Jesus that they had all thought they knew was the man that was going about and doing numerous miracles wherever he went. You know, as we read in the passage, and we'll cover again in a bit, he did not do much in Nazareth. He taught, and that was about it. Now, we see a mention of the siblings or half-siblings of Jesus. These are the children born to Mary and Joseph after the, Joseph after the birth of of Christ. These were the common children in an uncommon family. Now, it says that they were offended at him. The Greek word used to describe them being uh, was that they were stumbled by him. And the literal translation was that say that they were scandalized, which means that they were shocked by him. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, it says, He will be as a sanctuary 
but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You know, perhaps the biggest stumbling block of all for the people of Nazareth is the fact that Jesus' own family did not believe in him or follow him. You know, it begs the question of Mary's faith as a whole, having conceived by supernatural means as to if she was truly in disbelief or not towards Jesus. You know, it seems that she had to know this was that what Jesus was, uh, therefore, but refused to believe and follow him, possibly because of the outside influences that were surrounding her. You know, we know she had a difficult time during her pregnancy with Jesus because, you know, she wasn't married to Joseph yet. She was betrothed. And that's like a whole process that, uh, you know, it's going to take some time to cover. But as soon as you're betrothed to a man, you're basically, that's your engagement period. You know, that's when you're, you're, you're by them, you're with them, but you do not consummate the marriage or know each other physically until after the actual marriage takes place. And so she became pregnant during the time of the betrothal, and, um, you, you know, it created a great difficulty for her in that time. And so I wonder if the pressure that she was facing now with Jesus being out there teaching everybody, thinking he's out of his mind, he's performing all these miracles and stuff like that. I wonder if that weighed in on how she reacted to him and how reluctant she was to follow him or affirm the message that he was giving. Right. It wasn't up to her to affirm it, affirm it either way. You know, that was up to the father in heaven, his father. And so, um, I don't know, I guess some kind of questions that were going through my mind as I was doing this. Now, it's not much different in this day, day and age, though. Many pro people profess to know God, but when it comes down to living for him in the ways that he, uh, he has called us to live, uh, many people are very reluctant to actually follow him. Right. And it goes back to familiarity. I'm sorry, I have such a hard time with that word. But, you know, we think we're familiar with somebody. We think we know somebody. People think they know Jesus because of outside perception, right? The world has a negative perception of him. Um, Quasi-believers have a positive perception of him as long as it lines up with their own beliefs and not with the actual truth. But what happens is when the truth comes out and you read the word of God and you hear studies and it's taught to you and you you start to understand it and you're convicted by it, many people walk away from it. And that's where familiarity can be uh, deceitful for us. Verse 4 says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So because of Nazareth's rejection of Jesus, he would leave doing very little for the needy. You know, Jesus repeats what he said in the first visit and reminds the people that he would not be recognized in his own city. In fact, he expands on it as he rebukes his family as well as his neighbors. Now, I think verse 5 is the most telling verse for us here. And it says, Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. You know, many people expect God to work in their lives, but never assume any real version of faith. The only limitation to the, uh, to the omnipotence of God is unbelief. Faith, in fact, is the one requirement that we must have in order to experience the power of God in our lives through salvation. 
In Isaiah 53, 1, it says, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The answer to that question is to the faithful. Those that believe and look to God will see that which God is doing. In Nazareth, as a majority decided that Jesus was no more than a man destined to build with his hands, a few more were able to see that his hands held the power of healing. You know, people nowadays expect results from repetition. If a person, for instance, does the same math quiz every day for six months, well, eventually they memorize the quiz, right? But the knowledge of the quiz and what's on it often does not translate to the world outside their homes. You know, uh, we may go to church every week and memorize scripture, but unless we apply it to our lives, we fail to have any real use uh, for the empty knowledge that we've accumulated. You know, knowledge that is coupled with actions are what reveal faith. You know, if our outward appearance is one of piety, but inward truth uh, is that of unbelief, you cannot truly experience the power of God. It's like the man Ingersoll said, you're a songless bird in a cage, right? You're just there. You, you know all this stuff, but you're not doing anything. You, you're aware of all this stuff, but you're caged in because you, uh, you have an understanding, but you're not willing to go out and do what you need to do. You're not singing for the Lord the way that you should. You know, this is who the Nazarenes were. They refused to believe, and thus they missed out on the blessings that Jesus could have given them. You know, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. That means to be filled with wonder and astonishment. Uh, his works by this point were greatly known around the region, and yet the people he was closest to refused to believe. You know, at this point, Jesus leaves the synagogue into the smaller surrounding towns to teach in the synagogues. But what about the few people that laid there, that he laid hands on and healed them, right? What about those people? Well, those were the people that were genuine, that had a faith, that went to him and asked for help, that asked for salvation, right? What happens if you're born and, and, and you know, you got one leg that's shorter than the other? Well, obviously, if you hear about all these miracles and all these healings, you hear about these lame men being lowered through roofs, that have never been able to walk for like 33 years, and Jesus tells them, get up and walk. Well, of course, you're going to have faith, and you're going to go to him, and you're going to see him. You know, in our last study, we covered about the woman that had the uh, the hemorrhage for 12 years, and she was bleeding. She was unclean. She was uh, an, an outcast. But what did she do? She had just enough faith to reach out and touch his garment and be healed. You know, that's this few people inside the town of Nazareth that came to him and were healed. But you know what? He gives us a good example also. As he leaves Nazareth, and this is a great example for all of us that are in ministry, as well as those of us that are just sharing the gospel from person to person. We are not in need of a great audience. We only need an audience. That's it. Now, could you imagine if Jesus himself walked into a small church here in our own hometown, right? So many people are too caught up with trying to get more people into the crowds in their churches than they are about just ministering to the people that God has put in front of them. The only numbers that any pastor or teacher should be worried about are the numbers being added to the Lamb's Book of Life and not the numbers being added to their seating arrangements. You know, there's a story about Dr. Uh, C.I. Schofield, the man who was responsible for the Schofield Reference Bible. You know, he had been invited to speak in a church in North Carolina because it was a rainy night about 25 people showed up to the meeting. The young preacher who was in charge of the congregation leaned over and apologized, apologized to the doctor 
for the small number who had come to hear his preaching and teaching. Dr. Schofield replied, Young man, my Lord only had 12 men in his school and in his congregation most of the time. If he had only 12, who is C.I. Schofield to be concerned about a big crowd? You know, Jesus teaches us here to be faithful in the little things, and he will increase upon them. You know, we get what he gives us, and not what we go about building on our own. You know, it's not about the quality of people, the, the quantity of people that are present, but about the quality of what is being given out to those people. You know, the people of Nazareth were hardened towards the te teaching of Jesus. They didn't believe the message because they refused to accept him. The authority behind the teaching uh, or anything else that he had to offer. You know, they had become familiar with the man and had no regard for the message, and so they rejected him. You know, the world offers so, uh, up so many different versions of Jesus every day, and people buy into and accept those versions over the real Jesus. You know, it's generally because their version of the Savior is the one that is closest in alignment to themselves and their beliefs. What happens is when Scripture is opened up to them, and the reality of Jesus greets them with the inconvenient truth, they must make a choice to believe and repent or reject the truth. Now, sadly, there's too many people willing to ex uh, unwilling to accept and repent, and so they walk away from whatever faith they may have had. You know, that is why it's so important for us as believers to take the word seriously. We must read and get to know and understand who the real Jesus is. We cannot just be familiar with Jesus. We have to know him. Our faith is predicated on a relationship with Christ, and the more we know him, the more we will be able to he will be able to bless us as we apply truth to our lives. I think it's also important for us to listen to those people that God sends for us to learn from. We must always check what is taught against the word. But we never really know who God is truly using and what he may be using as a means of teaching us. You know, our faith is strengthened through the examples of faith of, uh, of the faith of others. And so if we are teachable and willing to learn, we will be blessed as well. We must always be willing to recognize the divine appointments that have been set in front of us because God can move through anybody, even those people that are right next to us throughout our entire lives. Father God, I thank you so much, Lord, for coming into the lives of men and women around me, Lord, for for coming into the lives of men and women around all of us all the time, Lord, and just using them to strengthen us, to lead us to you, Lord, to preach the gospel to us, Lord, to change our lives for the better. Father, we pray for those that don't know you. We pray for those that reject you. We pray for those that are familiar with you but don't yet know you, Father. Father, I pray that their walks would be strengthened as soon as they come to know you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen each and one, every one of our walks, Lord, that you would go before us, Lord, in our daily readings, in our prayers, in, in, in our workplaces, in our homes, wherever we may be, Lord. I pray that you would just meet us where we're at. Continue to change us, continue to work on us, and continue to heal us. Father, I thank you so much, and I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.